sitting in Norris eating mediocre lunches when the topic of the male gaze comes up. And we forgot about our mediocre lunches. We talked about the male gaze for so long that I was late to class. This is actually not like a, an unnatural, like unusual occurrence. But like this time I was like late to class because I was having a good conversation. Um, and we had so much to say yeah. that now you're going to listen to us talk about it. Intro music. <laughs> Hi, my name is Carly. I am a second year studying journalism and English with a theater minor, and I'm the associate editor on editorial at Stitch. Hi, I'm Vibavi. I am a third year studying journalism and English literature. We have the same majors. <laughs> um, I'm one of the print managing editors on Editorial at Stitch. Yeah. Now that you know stuff about us, I wish we could ask you stuff about you, but we're just going to get right into it. You clicked on the title. You knew what you were getting yourself into. So. The male gaze. We hear about it on social media apps like TikTok. We hear about the female gaze. Um, but a lot of the time, film bros just throw it around, and film gals, and film people. But <laughs> what does it actually mean? Like, let's get into it before we talk about our feelings on it. Okay, so I'm taking a class right now called Mad Women in the Attic. It's a literature class about the intersections between gender and insanity, and like how it's portrayed in classic literature. And actually, Stitch's EIC, Amina, um, is also in that class with me. And she shared this incredible quote um, a couple of days ago in class that I thought was like particularly um, like fits in, fits in with what we're talking about. Um, so it's a Margaret Atwood quote and Love. it goes like this. Even pretending you aren't catering to male fantasies is a male fantasy. Pretending you're unseen, pretending you have a life of your own, that you can wash your feet and comb your hair unconscious of the ever-present watcher peering through the keyhole peering through the keyhole in your own head, if nowhere else. You are a woman with a man inside watching a woman. You are your own voyeur. Um, I just think like that, it's just, it's so telling. Margaret Atwood, obviously she's a legend, but um, she definitely read Laura Mulvey's visual pleasure and narrative cinema. Um, which is sort of the origin of this idea of the male gaze. When we go into a cinema, the cinema in and of itself is this voyeuristic sort of area where you can leave yourself and watch someone else. Um, the cinematic gaze is inherently male because like most things in our history, they are unfortunately, the people who get to tell stories are like cis white men. Um, so the cinematic gaze is inherently male. And as a society, we watch these movies and we are trained to see the male gaze and enact it, you know, in our lives. The audience gaze becomes accustomed to the cinematic gaze, i.e. the male gaze. Um, and the male gaze basically consists of men being active agents and women being passive objects. Women become a spectacle and they learn to view themselves and take pleasure in the treatment of the male gaze. And they often say, uh, you know, this this sort of male gaze trope of a woman interrupting the narrative flow of a story, like a woman entering and the screen going into slow motion because she's so beautiful or a woman letting down the hair in her ponytail. And it's a whole moment, that is a trope of the cinematic gaze. Also, presenting women as a mysterious enigma to figure out um, is another trope that we see and it makes it excuse for the gaze to sort of linger. Yeah, I mean, it's this whole idea of like, I don't know, like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like if you have a male character, like the the main male you have like that particular lens that you're viewing the female characters through. And even then, like you as a viewer, it's like there's a couple of different layers to get to that female character. Like you're watching the male character watch the female character. And even you, like even if you don't identify as a cis man, like we're all affected by the male gaze and we're all 
taught to view the world through the male gaze. And so it's like this female character being such an enigma, it like filters into this whole idea of like, wow, like this like elusive beauty and like who knows what's going on in her head. It's there's like this added element of like the female character is a plot device for the male character. Like not only are they passive, but like they um, by interacting with the female character and like imbibing like the, the wisdom that this female character imparts um, or whatever <laughs> um, the male character gets to have like their own character arc and their own growth. And then the female character just disappears or she has like this completely like, flat um like she doesn't have any like character progression what's interesting that made me think of joseph campbell the guy who wrote a hero with a thousand faces and sort of developed this idea of the hero's journey when asked about women he was like lol um i don't have the exact quote but he was like lol <laughs> i'm sure um, that was the exact quote. <laughs> <laughs> he was like lol didn't really think about that women are just either prizes this isn't an exact quote, please. Um, but basically, women in stories boil down to prizes or a mother. Uh, or so that sort true. of mother elderly <laughs> figure. That is it. Now, Carly, which one are you? Are no, you a prize I? or are you a mother? <laughs> I am not a prize to be won. You know how Jasmine says that uh, in a lot. Yeah. There'll probably be more Disney references. But. As there should be. So. Now that we have a basic foundation, let's dive in to some examples in film and pop culture that all of you will recognize and that we have a lot to say about. <laughs> so true. Um, yeah, so literally the first thing we have, we have our notes here. Um, just, you know, now you have that exciting context. Um, the first thing I have in our notes is literally sexy badass spy. This is word for word um usually in a skin tight black suit um <laughs> and then i have a charlie's angels b bond girls c black widow in marvel and movies. batwoman so true and batwoman like i don't know it's just like this this idea of like usually you know like she doesn't wear makeup like like women women can't wear makeup according to the male gaze but like they're still like effortlessly you know what it is? Oh, wait, actually, a Bond girls wear makeup. That's, I lied. It, the basis of it is, like, a woman has clear strength and, like, badassery. That makes her masculine. To tame yes. down that threat of masculinity, we're going to sexualize the shit so out of her. So true. So true. And, you know, it's interesting to watch the progression of Black Widow from the first time we see her in Iron Man 2 versus you know her own movie how they sort of tried to uh have a better less male gaze you know take on it but at the yeah. end of the day the way that she was introduced and sexualized is not it this is actually I think like the initial conversation that sparked this podcast episode the manic pixie dream girl mm. <laughs> we have so many thoughts <laughs> fuck the manic pixie dream girl um it is defined by film critic Nathan Robin as that bubbly, shallow cinematic creature that exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. Yeah, so you have you have a, a guy who is just so serious and um, just has so many thoughts, you know, and... Um, naturally because women are not women don't have thoughts that's a joke you can't you can't tell because you can't see my face um naturally because women don't have any thoughts like our innate um bubbly happy outgoingness helps this man like come out of his shell and like embrace life um i i feel like i've seen this in like every movie i've watched it's, it's everywhere and um yeah like john I, green again, going back to john yeah. green like paper towns oh good lord or looking for alaska where she literally dies like halfway through the book oh yeah. sorry <laughs> i don't i'm assuming you know what i'm also thinking deal. of i love perks of being a wallflower yeah but i feel like that could even fall oh this. no fully because i think like that and I think that main character, oh my gosh, I literally, his name is Charlie. Yeah. Um, 
I think he he is super, super nuanced. And I think there's a lot that that book brings to the table in conversations of mental health, um, of, of childhood abuse and um, kind of j just like fitting in and, uh, and whatnot. But like, um, I don't remember any of their names. Sam's character. Yeah. She definitely, she, she definitely falls. She has into, a pixie cut too. She does. <laughs> she does. That's another um, um, trope with it. Some other examples. Yeah. Have you watched 500 Days of Summer? Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually, I really love that movie. And I feel like there's a few ways to kind of like look into that for, um, it can complicate. Yeah, exactly. Because I think it kind of like it plays into that trope and it kind of like emphasizes it in um, kind of like ridiculous ways. Like I think the film knows that it's being ridiculous. And then at the end, the female character is like, yeah, like you never looked at me as like a whole human. But definitely like if you like remove that like last chunk <laughs> like that is like you can watch that and be like, oh, okay, this is like, I understand. I understand the trope now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also Clementine from eternal sunshine of the spotless Mind. Now I love Kate Winslet. I, I love her. Obsessed with her. I watch everything that Kate Winslet. I know. Is in, I, she's in it. <laughs> I have a Titanic poster. Oh my God. Wait, I didn't even notice it, but I love that so much. I do love Titanic. Titanic was my favorite movie until maybe like ninth or 10th grade. Wait, yeah. It was like mine. I had the same experience. Leonardo DiCaprio was my first, like, I was like, I'm in love with him. Yeah. No, Titanic is so good. <laughs> um, love Kate Winslet. Love everything she's in. Um, but in this movie, she has no... Her character, Clementine, has only exists for the sad male protagonist. The um, the plot centers around, like, his, his character was like in a relationship with Kate Winslet's character, Clementine. First of all, her name, Clementine, like that, I feel like, like that's- please. Yeah, no, no one's named Clementine. That's another aspect of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. They were like in this relationship and then um, it like went sour and this dude is like obsessing over it, brooding over it. And he's like, wow, I wish I had never met Clementine. And it's like a sci-fi movie, like a, um, like a soft sci-fi movie where there's this new technology where you can like get rid of your memories about a specific person. So he decides to undergo this treatment. Um, and basically Clementine's character is literally just like there to like provide padding and um, help this main character realize that the male main character realize that um, forgetting about someone completely, like, like you deserve to have those happy memories. Yeah, like maybe life can be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the happy memories, like, like you have to be happy. You, you have, have to, to be sad in order to be happy. Like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> it's, it, oh. and the character like has no person, like her, her whole personality is like, she dyes her hair. Like, <laughs> like every week she gets her hair dyed, like it starts off like bright orange and then it like becomes like blue and then it's like pink. Um, and every male's fantasy. Every, <laughs> yeah. Every man's fantasy. Ramona Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but next, I just have to do this justice because when I told people I was making a podcast about the male gaze, one of the first things most people said was, are you going to talk about Megan Fox in the Transformers movies? Um, yes. There is a very famous scene of her bending over the hood of a car that was apparently transformative to the male psyche of the early 2000s. Is that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Tr Transformers. Oh, that's so, that was, that was unintentional. Um, but, okay, I've seen a couple Transformers movies. I cannot tell you what Megan Fox's character is. I cannot tell you. Like, or what role she serves in the plot. Most, Megan Fox in Transformers is a perfect example of the male gaze and a movie targeted towards males. And the only female character represented is heavily sexualized and objectified. So true. Those are my thoughts. So true. And then we have nerd <laughs> taking off her glasses oh! and transforming into a beautiful goddess trope. This is in every, every movie in the 80s. We have The Breakfast Club. Um... The Princess Diaries, which I love. I love the Princess I'm obsessed Diaries. with the Princess Diaries. Yeah. But she was cute with frizzy hair and glasses. She was. She was. And I also, like, I want to throw in there, I feel like there's a very, like, there's a very racialized element to that as well. Because um, definitely, like, frizzy hair, bushy eyebrows, whatnot. Um, like, they've. It, I feel like there are specific celebrities who have, like, made those, um, those physical uh, traits a lot more 
a lot more popular, I guess, like within um, like the beauty standard w recently. I'm particularly thinking of like Cara Delevingne, like yes. with her eyebrows, um, <laughs> with her eyebrows, you know, um, but like those are very like racialized things. And I think especially like as like a little Indian girl, like watching the Princess Diaries, like I have always had like big puffy hair um and like untamable eyebrows and i was like oh so i have to like look white to be pretty and um and i definitely like i don't know just like talking to like some of my other friends like and th there there is an aspect to that as well um yeah. i don't know if you remember editing this stitch article but it was about like the nerd like being a nerd and oh. i talked about the princess diaries and how i wore glasses when i was little I was like, oh my god, he just snaps him in half. Yeah. Like in the and I was like, yeah. Oh, I yeah. do. I now I I don't like. I fear wearing glasses. Like I wear contacts. I um, it's actually that's actually really interesting. Um, I've worn glasses since I was four. <laughs> I literally have god awful eyesight. You guys, it's from reading in the dark. <laughs> it like actually is. Um, but I've worn glasses since I was four. And now I'm scared of contacts. It's kind of like the opposite thing. And I wear contacts like every once in a while, but then um, it feels like when I wear contacts, I, 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 it feels like I'm being perceived and like not in the ways that I want to be perceived, which goes back to everything that we're talking about right now. Yes. Um, like the fact that when you get ready mm -hmm. and you're thinking about your appearance, you're not necessarily, it's not this shallow, I'm preoccupied with my appearance. It's this greater systemic idea that like, we are dressing like for the male gaze because that's what we've been like conditioned to subconsciously think about. So true. Yes. So true. Um, I don't know, have you watched She's All That? Wait, I don't think I have. That's totally okay. It's, it's a 90s rom-com that I feel like is the embodiment of this. So let me let me set the stage for you. We have this popular jock. We have this nerdy girl, you know, as it always is. Um, but the nerdy girl is beautiful and she doesn't know that she's beautiful because she wears glasses. So like Oh, I've definitely <laughs> seen that the trans the like the the beautiful, like uh, huge transformation is literally just her taking over. Like there's nothing else. And about. then she like pulls out her ponytail and it's like, wow, she's so stunning and she never knew it. But anyways, this um this dude is literally dared. To like um his he he's so popular right and so he's like i could get any girl to go with me to the prom and his best friend is like i bet you couldn't get that girl to go with you to the prom and he's like i think i could and um he like tries to win her over for this dare um and he doesn't want to because he's like oh she's so ugly <laughs> and then he wins her over and then like getting ready for the prom she takes off her glasses and pulls out her ponytail puts on a dress and she walks down the stairs we have like a classic like stair yeah. scene you know Which and yeah and he, they like make eye contact and he's like wow you're so beautiful i hate that i never so i'm not gonna awful. watch this now Oh <laughs> no, God. I mean, like, I'm making it sound so bad. It is an enjoyable rom-com. But there, but we can watch so When Harry Met Sally. We can watch some Nora Ephron for the female gaze. So true. <laughs> so true. For the podcast listeners, I'm doing all of you a, a public service right now. Um, when Harry Met Sally is being added to Netflix on May 1st. God, I love When Harry Met Sally. Any, go look up N Nora Ephron films if you want a good rom-com <laughs> that isn't male gaze heavy. Okay. So true. So true. Um, but yes, uh, notice how all of these characters fit into this sort of these sort of one-dimensional categories in which they only exist for the pleasure or to help male characters. So our next section is talking about how the male gaze is tied to toxic masculinity. We will talk about um obviously the other side of that coin, but it is also important to note that the male gaze affects everybody involved. So true. Um, I think particularly like, like men view themselves through the male gaze. Um, everybody views themselves through the male gaze and particularly um, unrealistic standards as to what like proper quote unquote masculinity looks like and um, beauty standards, mm -hmm. beauty standards for men. Um, it's just like it completely, it, it's all, it's all through the male gaze. Like this is not actually what women want 
out of relationships. I, like, no one wants you to look like that. I find it hilarious, like, laughing out loud. Maybe not, like, laughing out loud. But, like, looking through guys' dating profiles. Yes! I'm like, wait, what? In what? No, I don't they, understand. they're all, it's it's like a, um, it's like an elaborate like mating ritual you know like with like like peacocks like how they like fan out their like feathers and then they're like yeah like i have the shinier prettier feathers so is the male gaze like natural and that, selection? that's fully what like swiping through tinder it's just like like the like literally men just like fl flexing their biceps and then you like swipe to like the next picture and it's like they're like holding up like their fish you know or a dog oh yeah they're they're holding a dog um, oh god <laughs> Yeah, but anyways, um, our point being, um, very few men actually understand what women find attractive, which leads you to a point, which leads us to a point that you're passionate about, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> As your leader. That's so true. That's so true. I feel like I bring up Ryan Reynolds all the time um, in this conversation. I have to preface this with um, saying that I think that he's a delightful person. I personally don't find him attractive, but I think it's like, I'm like not judging anyone who finds him attractive, but I, <laughs> um, I think that he's so cool, but I think also like every, every single guy you ask, like, like they, they're all obsessed with Ryan Reynolds. They all think that he is so cool. He's so funny. And I think that, um, a lot of that has to do with the way that he fits into the framework of um what we've what we've defined as correct masculinity um it, like he's he's big he's buff he's white um he has his like sandy blonde hair he's funny you yeah know, sarcastic. exactly exactly like and so he fits into that framework so well so men understand it they're like yeah i can see why women find ryan reynolds attractive um whereas um a lot of a lot of the other men who i feel like lots of like lots of the the girls I talk to lots of the other women I talk to find attractive um men don't understand it <laughs> let's get into the men written by women trope because yes. I love it I don't care I'll say it um men written by women is sort of I feel like it's kind of stemmed from men in media who don't necessarily fit this like even you can even say like a heteronormative um standard um not a you know i don't show any emotion i'm big and buff like that's not what women find attractive and when we say like men written by women we feel like it's i'm not making sense no, no, no i i get i get that though like a lot of it comes down to like we have a list of celebrities here so and if you can relate to any of these andrew garfield i have an andrew garfield mug right there and he's also like oh. on my wall He's like right. Oh, wait, there. that is so good. And so I love he's like it. looking at. Oh my yeah. gosh, I love it so much. I love that he's providing you affirmation. I know. Wait, fuck. That's kind of male <laughs> <It's>... gaze. <laughs> <laughs> wait. Okay. Okay. It's my... There's there's a mirror. It's there's from a mirror of Carly's door that says "You look good," and then to the left there is a clip out of Andrew Garfield wait, smiling at the mirror. This complicates things. <laughs> We're gonna move on. Okay, so our list of celebrities. Andrew Garfield, Timothy Chalamet. I put Dev Patel in here. I, I love, love Dev him. Patel. I love him so much. Like and that Andrew, Andrew Garfield, Garfield video that went viral where he's like, he's like, she's like a shot of espresso. <gasps> Talking oh about Emma Stone God. and the way he looks at Emma Stone. That is what people who like men written by women. No, men that's... who are words of affirmation, -y, yeah. who show up, who are emotionally vulnerable. Like that is what is attractive. Yeah. Oh, okay, so if if you somehow are like living under a rock and you haven't heard this, he's like, um, he's describing Emma Stone. He's like, uh, th this like when he first started working with Emma Stone, their first meeting, and he's like, she was like a shot of espresso, and being with her is like being bathed in sunshine. I got chills. No, that's <laughs> actually that's insane, and I always have loved Emma Stone. Um, just like honestly because i relate to her personality on such yeah. a big level and i'm like wow a world where someone describes me like that like i don't I, yeah like i don't care about this vision of masculinity that that we have yeah. i don't want yeah you know what i mean and i also like i i don't know if this is gonna make any sense but i feel like emma stone Carly and I are going to talk about this later. Um, be, being typecast ourselves as manic pixie dream girls, 
um, or being viewed like that. And I feel like Emma Stone having a similar personality and being a beautiful woman um, has the has the potential to be viewed as a as, as a manic pixie dream girl. I don't know if that makes any sense because she's bubbly, she's happy, she brings a lot of energy to the room, and that's a strength. Um, apart from her, uh, how she how she might serve like her male counterparts and stuff. But I feel like um, the way that Andrew Garfield describes her and it's like, like when he looks at her, it's like he's like seeing her as a human and, and not as a one dimensional. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then we mentioned Timothy Chalamet. Timothy. <laughs> there's, a there's a blanket <laughs> with his face on it over there. When I. Wonderful. Timothy Chalamet in Little Women as Laurie. When he's like, oh. I've loved you ever since the first moment I met you, Joe. Oh I'm going to cry. That line, like, that gets me. And Timothy, one of the things I love about Timothy Chalamet, he's super close with his mom. He, like, took his mom to the Oscars multiple times. Yeah. He's into fashion. He doesn't necessarily, he doesn't go to every award show in, in the typical masculine boring suit. He expresses himself and his emotions like that is men written by women. If I sound different, it's because we realized this stopped recording. <laughs> so we're re-recording. Um, so this is going to be like even more polished for you guys. One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> no promises. Um, but yes, we're talking about the female gaze and how female directors complicate the argument that the cinematic gaze is the male gaze. Um, now, first, we're going to bring up um, Twilight. Uh, I am on Twihard. Uh, always have, always will be. Always Team Edward as well. Um, if you're Team Jacob, I don't trust you. Anyways, that's like my opinion. But <laughs> um, anyways, um, Twilight, which came out in 2008, the film came out in 2008, is directed by um, a woman named Catherine Hardwick. And what I wanted to bring up about Twilight is how Edward represents this manic pixie dream guy in a way and this trope is sort of turned on its head and that bella moves to this you know town with a population of three thousand. this you know she's kind of unhappy about it doesn't really have direction uh and then edward comes along he walks into the hallway in slow motion um you know there's a break in the narrative plot he's presented as this mysterious enigma who glares at her his eyes change color he's like incredibly beautiful he sparkles um he does sparkle like <laughs> um all of this is giving manic pixie dream girl but on a like 118 year old vampire and male vampire and it's just it's really interesting to think about yes i think that twilight is problematic in a few other ways which is a whole nother episode but in terms of being by a female director, I think it is just interesting to think about Edward as a manic pixie dream guy. So true. Um, another another little bullet point that we have here is um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I feel like is the epitome of the female gaze. Um, partially because you have two women. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but for those who haven't watched the movie, first of all, you should go watch it. Um, yeah, but it's about these uh, two women in, like, Regency-era France, and it takes place in this, like, secluded, like, beachside setting where one of the women, uh, Eloise, is engaged. Um, she's going to get married to this dude. <laughs> to, this, to this dude. And, um, like, you know, it's the Regency era, so um, the her family wants to provide this man with, like, a portrait of her um like a like a proper painted portrait and so they commission this other woman uh this other woman Marianne um to paint this portrait and um obviously like it's a romance so Marianne and Eloise fall in love and a lot of the movie is um obviously like because of because this is a queer relationship and it's a historical relationship it's a historical um a historical fiction um they're not able to verbalize their attraction in lots of ways so um the romance kind of like it progresses through like glances and subtle touches and um just like small tender moments and um i feel like especially because painting is a big aspect of this movie there's an extended metaphor that's going on throughout this whole thing 
um, of like the female gaze, like literally you watch it, you watch it progress as Marianne paints Eloise. Um, and a lot of those tender moments like come across like as she looks at Eloise and like as she captures her likeness in a painting. And it's just like, it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. When you said that, it kind of reminded me of when we talk about like men written by women or, or like this relationship portrayed, you know, through subtle glances or touches. Um, it's all about, I feel like the female gaze is all about perceiving individuals as whole people. Um, you know what I mean? Um, like Andrew Garfield, <laughs> um, looking at Emma Stone as a whole person or these two, um, like Marianne and Eloise, um, you know, sort of both in these subtle glances were affected by them because they're seeing each other. And that's what like the male gaze doesn't do, you know? Yeah, that's um, so true. Also, we have to bring up Greta Gerwig. We have to bring up Lady Bird. Um, obviously, Greta Gerwig isn't the first female director, you know, ever, clearly, but um, it was one of the first times I've seen a mother-daughter relationship that's complicated um, portrayed por portrayed through the female gaze. Um, and I cry like a baby every time I watch that movie. And there are film bros who say nothing happens in Lady Bird. And I say, you are the problem. So with some pop culture examples, we're going to go in, we're going to get a little personal stitch. We're going to dive into how it affects um, V and me. Uh, and I guess, obviously, we chose to make this podcast, so we clearly feel passionate about, passionately about it. Um, but of course, we first want to note that our experiences are exactly that, our experiences. And it's a complicated issue, like all systems of oppression, um, they're intersectional and they depend on one's intersecting identities, um, like sexual orientation, race, um, even, you know, socioeconomics. It really, like, everyone's Every lived experiences identity. is different. Yeah. Um, Women and female presenting people are constantly aware of the gaze on themselves. And this gaze is internalized and we are conditioned to take pleasure in the idea of being objectified or as a, a passive means for the active male. Um, now, Vivi and I have talked about this before, but I think, and I've, I know I've spoken to other women who can relate to this, but I have been in relationships where uh, I'm being, you know, romantic relationships where I'm being physically intimate. And in the moment, I am having a, a good old time. And I am, you know, consenting to everything that's happening. And afterwards, I feel like absolute garbage. Absolute disgusting. Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely disgusting. And um, as I've gotten older, I've questioned these moments of disgust. Um, and kind of asked myself, did I consent to this because I wanted this? Or did I consent to it because I wanted to be wanted? And I wanted to make someone else feel good and be happy. And that is tied back into this male gaze idea of a woman being a prize or an object or existing for the pleasure of a man, you know? Um, I definitely like I can relate to that a lot. And the word that um, resonates with me in particular is like hypersexualizing, like hypersexualizing myself um, in the past. Um, yeah, and just like coming out of experiences, like coming out of like intimate experiences, feeling gross feeling like trash and being like, why do I why do I feel so gross? Like, like I consented to that. Um, and and yeah, like like going going back to I think you made a really good point about wanting to make someone else feel good and how that's a big aspect of that's a big aspect of the female gaze because I feel like a lot of the time like a big part of that is like our like female sexuality is viewed as a tool. Yes. Um so and and just like any tool, like you're expected to wield like it, you can't like use a hammer as a <laughs> you can't you can't use a hammer and expect it to work like a pulley you know um can you can you tell i went to a stem high school haha <laughs> um <laughs> um but 
like, just like any tool, like there's certain ways in which sexualizing yourself or like, like performing sexual acts, like there's some ways where it feels male gazy. <laughs> That's a good word to describe it. No. Yeah. Um, and I often find, I think this is a, like another really nuanced part of this is like when I'm getting ready in the morning, I wish like I didn't exist in a physical form. Well, that sounds silly. Like I'm totally fine, but I, <laughs> I totally I'm like fine. fine. But when people make comments about how I look, whether it is good or bad, whether it is from anyone of any identity, um, it kind of makes me feel icky. And I wish I wasn't perceived by my appearance. And at the same time, that like that's my real voice. But at the same time, I have been conditioned by patriarchy and the male gaze to get ready in the morning, be critical of myself and my appearance, um, to dress a certain way, um, you know, to care about my appearance in a way that isn't me. And, you know, if other women are preoccupied with their appearance, it's it's not because they're shallow. It's probably because something traumatic happened to them and they're insecure. You know what I mean? Spe yeah. I was going to say, speaking of um, trauma. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I modeled from when I was 14 to 16. And uh, obviously, most of the photographers were male. And, um, you know, they say that modeling in the industry just sells sex and youth. Um, and I was 14 and starting my freshman year of high school and, you know, sort of thrown into this heavily objectifying place. And like, since then, I, I make it very clear how like, not appearance focused I am. Like, I, I don't like that's ugh. like, I don't care what anyone looks like. I just want but at the, like, I don't care what anyone looks like, but at the end of the day, I am still so aware that I am being perceived in the world. And like, I'm so aware of my appearance. But, like, I, I don't care at the end of the day. Do you know how it's like, it's oh, a dialectic? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, speaking of trauma, <laughs> um, just like going into my identities a little bit, like um, for those who I guess like might not might not know me in person. Um, I am an Indian American woman. And so there's going, going back to the whole like intersectional experiences discussion, um, a very big aspect of like growing up South Asian, like South Asian women are very desexualized um, within, um, within white America's uh, view perspective i don't i don't know how to word that but like we're we're very desexualized in media in everyday life like you're not you're not viewed as like a viable prospect um and so it was this very either that or you're completely exoticized and like two ends of the exactly no, exactly and i feel like i had I mean, I, I joke about this with people all the time. I joked about this with Carly and I don't actually like believe it, but like I joke about like being ugly most of my life growing up and which I, <sighs> I love, I love my, I love my younger self. She I like showed me photos and was like, you can't say this isn't ugly. And I was like, why the V? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I joke about it. I know that I wasn't ugly, but like, I think there is something to be said about like, I don't know, like owning the fact that you don't fit societal standards for beauty. And then, um, and then later on, like I had a little glow up and then all of a sudden it was like, people were like perceiving me in different ways and people were treating me differently. And I feel like I completely swung from this like desexualized, desexualized Indian American girl to an exoticized, hypersexualized Indian American girl. And that that shit is that is traumatic and yeah. again like going back to what you were saying about like getting ready every day and wishing that i didn't exist in a physical form um <laughs> no i i can relate to that yeah um and i actually was like i was thinking about this recently i was like walking around and um i didn't put that much effort into my outfit or my makeup or whatever that day and i was like hey i'm like not being perceived as much and um it was like nice and i was like damn i wish that i could like go back to 
I mean, like pre glow up again, like I'm not saying that I was ugly, but like, <laughs> like, I wish that I could go back to pre pre glow up when I could just like exist as a human. And um, now I feel like people go into conversations with me with like a preconceived idea of what I'm like. Um, I feel like a lot of the time, like they go into conversations with me expecting that I'm going to be shallow um, or shallow or vapid or all of these words that we um, associate with, I guess, like attractive women. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I was like, I just like, don't want that anymore. But then at the same time, it like, it's interesting because I mean, like pretty privilege is such a loaded term. Um, but it, it like people did start treating me differently. Like it all of a sudden, and again, going back to intersecting identities, um, one thing that I like to, that I, that I make a point of talking about a lot because it's important to my identity is, um, being like a neurodivergent person having ADHD. And a lot of that has to do with like, um, like I have, I have pretty severe like ADHD hyperactivity and um, that forms a, a core aspect of my personality. I feel like I'm a very fun person. I'm very fun to talk to. Um, I'm very fun to hang out Can with. Can confirm. <laughs> Thank you. the best. Um, but I feel like it went from um, like pre glow up people being like, oh, this is like that. That's that's the weird girl. That's the weird girl who says weird things. Um, like vulnerability was not really considered like a strength before I was pretty. Like it, it was kind of just like, yeah, that, I, I was considered weird. And then it was, and then I got pretty. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, like that, that's the quirky girl, quirky girl who I want to be friends with. Or again, like through the male gaze or like for lots of men, I feel like it, I turned into like a manic pixie dream girl in their eyes. Yeah. I'll segue into like my experience with Manic Pixie Dream Girl-esque things. We're going to go, because a lot of Manic Pixie Dream Girls fall under the trope of being not like the other girls. Um, So let's get into that because I have been assigned as being not like the other girls by like men I've like, you know, dated. And why is that? Because they find me attractive, but I like things like Star Wars and Marvel. I'm not even kidding. Um, Damn. Uh, I'm not like the other girls because of that. Wow. Um, and I think not like the other girls is a really interesting male gaze sort of concoction in which <laughs> disliking traditionally feminine modes of expression, hobbies, and etc. Um, somehow makes a female more interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, for instance, when we think of Elle Woods. We should talk about, like, I want to do a whole podcast on Legally Blonde. I love her Facts. because yes. she embraces her hyper femininity mm -hmm. while still being a f***ing, well, she embraces, <laughs> she embraces her hyper femininity while still achieving everything she wants in her life. Oh, she's incredibly smart and she's incredibly successful, but she achieves her success by being herself, by being herself and by, um, and like, honing in on her strengths which are like trusting the people around her and like like treating them as whole humans exactly. like like that yeah and actually Elle Woods believes women she believes Brooke, Brooke Wyndham Brooke Taylor Wyndham wow. yes um <laughs> anyways I would say Elle Woods or you know Sharpay Evans whole nother can of worms from High School Musical those are like the other girls because they have this I'm not saying I, I love both of those characters, but like from a male gaze perspective, those are like other girls, you know, they like pink, they like, pink they wear glitter, they like sparkles. And I talk to, I mean, you can see my whole, a lot of my room is pink. I love pink. I but love I went, pink. I went through a phase where I was like, I, I don't too. like pink. I did too. Like I have to be, I can't. No, it's, it's so ridiculous with... too, because pink has like, like as a, as a little baby, little baby by the bee loved pink like every single thing that was pink was like I had to have it I have this little like pink elephant like Aww. stuffed animal that I've had since like I was like one that's so cute and um I had this little pink frilly dress that my grandmother got me that I would wear every single day that was like my my outfit you know and like it would have to like go through the wash like <laughs> like a million cycles through the wash because that was all I ever wanted to wear and then um I think around middle school you know 
uh, I was like, oh yeah, like, I don't, like, I don't like, I don't like pink. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I don't like pink. That is, that is such a silly frivolous color, which is like, so like stupid to think back on. I know. But, like, it's a color. It's, it's, the it's way, a color. The, the way our eyes <laughs> perceive a certain, like, spectrum. Yeah, but light. I, I was just like, I don't want to be perceived as yeah. frivolous. So like, I don't like pink. I don't like glitter. Do you want to know something? I love something? pink and glitter. That's such a lie. Oh my God. <laughs> when I was young, I... I don't know if there are any there are any too many photos of little me in here. Like I'm you can kind of see I had kind of blondish hair. Yeah. And I would tell people I'd get so upset if people said I was blonde. I was like, no, I have brown hair. Cause I didn't want to be perceived as like, you know, yeah, what we associate with blonde hair, which is so ridiculous. Um, you know, it's it's things like that that we might not necessarily think about on an everyday basis, but like that's the male gaze. Um, also, you know, things that are associated with women in our culture are deemed as lowbrow. Things like liking fashion is shallow, but when in reality, fashion is an art form. Or things like chick flicks or, or romance novels are considered like lowbrow media. Um, it, like, question is everything that's targeted to women just lowbrow or is that anything made by women lowbrow like why is that um yeah no I hate that so much yeah like personally like and Carly and I have talked about this before but like we both love romance novels and I think like the stigma surrounding like that section of the book like my guilty pleasure yeah (laughs) and like the little like mass market paperbacks that like mothers read with like Fabio on the cover or whatever. Fabio! (laughs) I mean, like, the romance genre is, it's so expansive. And again, like, a lot of these, a lot of these books cater to the female gaze. And um, so, like, reading them, it's like, oh, yeah, that, like, like, reading this feels healthy because it's, it's like, like, by a female I don't want to say it's like a utopia, but it's like reading into a a form of media that isn't like the male gaze what what I guess we're used to yeah but they're like they're so nuanced and um there's so many there's so many layers to the romance genre that I feel like people never recognize and um it's so frustrating because especially thinking about things that are considered classics now like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, um Jane Austen's novels they're all considered classics um but like what distinguishes them from like the romance novels of today it's literally just time it's just hundreds of years of people like asserting that like yeah no this is a valid novel and like like that compounded like analysis of these books and then like suddenly like people believe they're like oh yeah wait yeah that's that's so true that's a good that's a good book um <laughs> wait maybe you do have a plan. like i firmly believe the hunger games will be 1984 in 100 years you're so hot right. take but no i, I totally agree. I, okay here's the two guys i went on a date with a guy and i said i'm taking a class that's like we're kind of focusing on the hunger games and he said i thought that was just like a like a like a girl's franchise and i i was in shock Number one, it's written by a female author and has a female main character. And for that reason, it is a silly franchise. This movie, The Hunger Games dives into so much on surveillance culture, on systems of oppression and the different levels of systems of oppression. That's a whole nother podcast, but we just write things. And it's not like, you know, he inherently was like, you know, I'm a misogynist, but that's what the overall conversation like in our culture is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not dating him, by the way. We only went on one date. Uh, like. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think also, like... Wait, actually, I don't know what I was going to say. No, um, <laughs> well, only having male friends or considering women more, like, catty or gossipy. We see this in films, like, with the film trope of not like the other girls, but also in movies. Like, I also... <laughs> we see this in films, but I feel like we also see it in real life. I feel like like they're like the tomboy or like oh she's just a she's not a girly girl. Carly, I realized this recently about myself. I realized that all like most of my most of my friends are guys. Um, I had that in high school too. And I I love I love my guy friends. Like I will send this to y'all, so you will be listening to it. Um, <laughs> I love y'all, but like um, also I was like, why do I not have any female friends? Like what it like what does that say about me? And what does that say about like what I what I believe about female friendship? Um, and again, like, can we, can we go back to that, that word gossipy? Um, 
I was I was reading I was reading an article about how gossip um is actually like a really it's a really important um conversational tool because like it's a tool of power exactly yeah because it's like like women women gather and they're able to talk about things that they're not able to talk about in other spaces um and then it's um like diminished and villainized like by the rest of society no we talk about in in things like pandora Pandora's box or these things like having curiosity and wanting to know things and spread information and share stories is such like a, um, it's so heavily associated, it's so heavily associated with, um, like being a woman. And I think it's just interesting that the male gaze has found a way to demonize this storytelling and like spreading of information, you know? Um, yeah, we also wanted to talk a little bit about like, wanting to or feeling pressured to emulate masculinity in order to be taken seriously so whether that's like at work or just like in your personal life like in classes and stuff like feeling like you need to dress a certain way to be taken seriously in your classes um or you need to speak a certain way um and like this definitely again intersectionality um a lot of this like ties into uh white hetero patriarchal capitalism um and like the hashtag girl boss um millennial movement (laughs) that was basically just like like white feminists like putting on putting on their pantsuits and climbing the corporate ladder and being like i'm a feminist um but like at the expense of women of color and women of different socioeconomic statuses yeah white feminism is like a whole another can of worms oh um, for sure and so this that's just the tip of the um yeah tip of the iceberg i also think it's interesting when you were saying that we're gonna go back to i'm gonna bring it back to Elle Woods. as you should um like on our first day of law school she whips out like this heart-shaped notebook and this fuzzy pen that's like hot pink with sparkles and everyone looks at her like what is she doing no one takes her seriously um you know, and she kind of tones down this femininity towards the middle and, you know, starts dressing in more pantsuits and things like that. But, you know, in the final court scene, she walks in in a hot pink ensemble with um, with her dog, Bruiser. Bruiser. Aw. They're both Gemini vegetarians. Uh, that's what she said. <laughs> um, uh, but I just think, yeah, Vibe V, to wrap things up, one day, we will live in a world where everyone is aware of this. The effects of the male gaze it has on people of all genders. Yeah. And, you know, with awareness, um, although awareness can be kind of not a good feeling, we can move forward. So true, Carly. Thank you for talking with me. And thank you all for listening. If you got to the end of this, like, we should get coffee. (laughs) Because... (laughs) get coffee you got you want a free coffee like with the two of us um Uh, congratulations (laughs) literally just text me text me and we'll find a time um if i love you if you listen this far um go out there be yourself and um yeah love y'all love you bye